Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Everything Co-op. This is Vernon Oaks. And this morning, we, we have Mr. E.G. Nado uh, on the phone. That's doctor. I'm sorry, Ph.D. Good morning, Mr. Nado. Good morning. It's great for you to be on this morning, for taking out the time to, to be on the show with us this morning. Thank you very much. Uh, how are you doing this morning? And what part of the world are you in? I'm in Colorado right now visiting my son and his family. Great, 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 great. Mr. Nando, you have been in this cooperative world all of your life. I want to ask you a personal question here. So, being a white man, as you are, having what is now known as white privilege, you could have been one of those capitalists that look out for yourself and only yourself and maybe your family. You're with your son in Colorado now. You could have just made a life that's set in motion to how you can gather as much as you can, but you've chosen a different life. How did you get there? What made you want to go down this road of co-ops and working with and for people? Well, that's a good question. Actually, uh, my, my father was a doctor, and his father was a doctor, and I went to college thinking that I was going to be a doctor, too. But when I went to college, I found that pre-med was really not my uh, strong point. And besides that, I went to college in the late 60s and graduated in 1970. So that was in the midst of a lot of activity in the civil rights movement, in anti-war protests, and a lot of other question authority type activities. And so I would say that my college education was mostly among my fellow students and not so much um, professor-to-student type relationships. And I was really at that point where I, I, I shifted into sociology as my, uh, my area of study and was trying to figure out what I could do that would be useful to the world rather than make me a lot of money. Useful to the world as opposed to making a lot of money. Well, that is different and great. So we are about, we're about the same age. I, w- I went to Bluefield State College and and graduated. Well, I was intended to graduate in '69, but I didn't finish until '70. And so we were we were fighting and looking at those same kinds of things. I was a historically black college, 1,000 students in the poverty area of of, of the United States. Uh, so trying to figure out whether I was going to protest the civil rights whether I was going to go to Vietnam. I'd already been drafted and was given a one why to go to college. And I would tell students when I was teaching, if you really want to, it was you make good grades or you go die. And that was like it, it was easier to make good grades back then. So you went from medicine to sociology. So how did you get into this co-op world, though? Well, right after college, I went into the Peace Corps. 
and ended up going to Senegal, a, a rural community in Senegal, and had this kind of nebulous assignment to community development. You know, it's kind of broad-based, and it's not clear what the heck you're supposed to be doing when you're doing community development. But that was what I was supposed to be doing in, in the village that I was in. So, well, I guess just to stick with the co-op theme, uh, one of the things that was going on in the village that I was in, it was a fishing village on the coast of Senegal, the Atlantic coast. And the fishermen in the village were very good at catching fish, but when it came to marketing them, they sold them to middlemen just kind of right off the boat, got pretty low prices, and then the middlemen took them up to the capital and to other cities in the country. And so... uh, even though I didn't know anything about co-ops at that time, I thought, geez, if they got together and marketed their own fish, you know, rented trucks or whatever to get them to other to, to cities away from the village, uh, they could make a lot more money for themselves. Uh, so that was my idea, but I didn't get very far with that idea. Um, being a foreigner who spoke very limited local language and being very young, you know, in a lot of cultures, Young people don't get paid a lot of attention to. It's the elders that are that are listened to. So anyway, the, the idea never got anywhere in the village, but I got excited about the idea, and I thought, well, when I get out of the Peace Corps, I've already got a place lined up at the University of Wisconsin to continue in sociology at the graduate level, and I'm going to keep studying these things. I want to learn more about them. I want to learn how to do them right. So your first sort of entry and you trying to create a co-op, didn't know the name of it, uh, but getting people to work together uh, to solve a community issue, That so that was community development, that did not work for you. It did not pan out, but you learned from it and it made you curious. That's right. So my career started with a failure. <laughs> no, I thought total success because you got knowledge. Okay, that's total success. And it's also interesting is Senegal because I have it. Well, first off, that's where a lot of slaves came from West Africa and Senegal particularly. There's a house of slaves there right right on that coastline. And uh, I have it that that blacks in those slave ships brought mutualism over here from West Africa. And that it, even in the slaves on the plantations, Blacks would pool their resources, and they create borough societies so that they could bury each other, or they pool their resources to buy somebody's freedom. And when they got out, they got a job, and they helped to put more money in to buy somebody else's freedom. And you know, Dr. Jessica Gordon Emhart in her book, she talks about the uh, Underground Railroad was nothing but a cooperative. wasn't called that either. But that's what it that's what it really was. So it's interesting that that's your roots of learning about co-ops is in Senegal. Right. One of the things I should say is that there was an informal type of cooperation going on among the fishermen already in the village. They would fish um, out of these large canoes that they called pirogues, French, I guess, basically a French name for for canoe, and maybe it would be eight fishermen fishing out of the same boat using a large net. They even used Evinrude or Johnson motors on that they attached to the to the uh canoes. So there was a, a modern you know, at the time a modern technology involved in what they did. 
And it was it was a very cooperative effort to catch those fish in the first place. And then they split the money up that they made from their fishing equally among the members of the people on the boat, um, plus a share for the for the motor and a share for the boat. So whoever owned the boat and whoever owned the motor got extra shares for supplying that to the fishing. So that is a form of cooperation. Yes, yes, absolutely. Everybody is working. Everybody's putting their effort in, their knowledge, their whatever resources they have, and then you split up those those funds. Yep, that's absolutely a form form of cooperation. So from from so I got you from the Peace Corps undergrad in Harvard. I read Magna Cum Laude, so you smart. Then you you went into the Peace Corps. You got a taste of this. Now, where did you go from there? Well, um, as I said, I went to the University of Wisconsin in Madison um, in the sociology department, only to find that they didn't have any courses on co-ops in the sociology department. They only had one course in the whole university on cooperatives, and it was in the agricultural economics program. And so, I, of course, I took that course, and then I, I kind of I made up my own major in co-ops when I was in graduate school. Well, that's interesting because the University of Wisconsin has so many classes now and so much research on, on co-ops. I would have thought in 19, well, you're 71, 72, that they would have had classes back there. But it's agriculture is what got it going. Okay, so where did you, you, you got your doctorate in sociology? I did. Uh, I did my I did my doctoral dissertation on farming co-ops in Zambia. So I ended up going back to Africa, a different country, and uh, focused on a couple of farming co-ops uh, for my dissertation. Wow, that's fantastic! Okay, so from Senegal back to the U.S., then back then to Zambia. So you got your doctorate. And where do we go from there? Well, floundering, I think, would be the next <laughs> next phase of my career. Still, still related to fishing, but um, trying to get a job that I thought was relevant to what I was interested in. So I spent about, I don't know, uh, five years or so out of college doing a variety of consulting, working for the state of Wisconsin, doing various things. And... The uh, the breakthrough in my co-op career, I guess I could say, was uh, I got a phone call from the head of the Wisconsin Federation of Co-ops who invited me for an interview for a job that I didn't even know existed. And uh, I went in and met with him, and he told me that they wanted to set up a cooperative development organization to provide assistance to people who wanted to form a co-op or to fix up a co-op that was in trouble or needed just needed some additional help. And he said, uh, we'll hire you to organize this co-op development assistance organization. We'll give you a year to do it. And if you do it, then you can run that organization. And if you don't, you got to go look for a job someplace else. Okay. That's motivator. Yeah. All right, so how long did you do that? One year well, or longer? Well, I, I did I did successfully organize the, the co-op entity, and then I spent uh, pretty much the next 30 years working with it, partly as the executive director and partly as a co-op developer. 
and uh, and I did a few other things on the side as well. Okay, so it's fascinating that you, in the civil rights movement, Vietnam, which we both grew up in, and and um, questioned all of all of our values. You decided you wanted to do good in life, uh, so you changed your major from medicine, which you weren't as good as as perhaps your grandfather and father, and so you went to sociology. Then you took a job in the Peace Corps, which I had considered, by the way. And then you went to Senegal and you learned about cooperation, came back to the University of Wisconsin, got a doctorate in sociology and made up your own courses, floundered for five years, and then somebody gave you a call. And you worked in that position for 30 years. You know, we're going to take our first break, and I'd really like to come back. And, and talk about what you did after those 30 years. But I really want to hear about some of the development projects that you did, some of the uh, and some of the things that you learned as you helped develop these projects. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And we have Mr. E.G. Nado on the line with us this morning. Uh, he has traveled the world uh, developing and preserving cooperatives. And he and I both grew up and questioned the world in the, in the light of the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War, challenging the government and everything else. So listen, Mr. Nado. I've got you working 30 years in developing this organization. What did you do after that? Well, I actually did other things sort of simultaneous with that. The co-op development organization that I was sort of the founder and first director of, that grew from about 1985, and it's still functioning today with a new director. I mean, not actually the current director has been there about – 15 years. But what we did was we worked with other groups to form additional co-op development organizations in the United States. Uh, One of those groups you may have had some contact with, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. That may be a group you might want to talk about. Oh, they were formed in 1967 in the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, Ralph Page was on the first Thanksgiving seven and a half years ago. His wife let him come and talk to us before he ate his turkey. And Cornelius Blanding have been on, Monica Raines, who just took a job at the Department of Ag. Uh, yes, I love I've been down to their annual meeting three times. I'm a life member of the organization. I love it so much and what they do in those 13 states for black farmers and cooperatives. Yes, I know that. <laughs> okay. okay, I guess, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm taught I'm a preaching to the choir or something here. But, um, yeah, so they, they – they're considered to be the first cooperative development organization in the U.S. That's my oh, I didn't know that. historical understanding. Yeah, and then we're often referred to as the second, uh, the the organization that I formed in, in Wisconsin. But then there began to develop other co-op development organizations with similar goals of establishing and preserving co-ops in the United States. And now there are something like forty of them. You know. Very small beginnings, but they developed and expanded into a, a national group of organizations, and they even have a name. It's called Cooperation Works. So you can you can Google that and 
find the this this sort of a secondary organization that these 40 organizations are part of including the federation and, and i will so, do that okay yeah so part of you know part of my work was working and developing these other organizations and then working with them to develop this national presence which we then used to get some funding out of the federal government rural cooperative development program which still exists it survived the trump years and um hopefully it will now expand and do a lot more than it has been in the last few years so part of my work was to provide and the, and the staff that i worked with was to provide assistance to co-ops one of the groups of co-ops that we worked with a lot was natural foods co-ops which is kind of a a movement that also grew up around late 60s, early 70s, and now there are well over 300 natural foods co-ops around the country. But they were kind of new at this co-op game, too, so they needed assistance in order to keep good books and do good marketing and, you know, with, without abandoning their core missions of being community-based and selling quality, healthy foods and stuff. So um, that was an area that, that, that we emphasized. So between 1985 and 2000, pretty much all my work was devoted toward these domestic co-op development organizations and domestic co-ops. But then in 2000, I got the opportunity to do a consulting job for the National Co-op Business Association in Ghana. And um, I did that, and, and that led to about 25 more international consulting projects um, between 2000, and I think the last one I did was in 2017. Wow. So you went from the African coast, from Senegal to Zambia to Ghana, and I would love to tell you a story. I decided I wanted to be a Ghanaian when I met the, the king of the Ashante tribe. And mm -hmm. the Ashante, the British could not beat them. The Ashantes kept beat off the British. And so they kept their own land, and the British took control over everything else. And so I said, I wanted to, I'm, I'm Ghanaian, because I'm not a fierce fighter like they are. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, I, and I, I never, I, I have not gotten there yet. I've been to Gambia and Sierra Leone, but I haven't gotten to Ghana yet. Yeah. Well, I, I, I had similar thoughts. I mean, you know, I'm a white guy, but I want, I kind of wanted to make Ghana my second home because I, I felt like it would be good to have a focus on a particular part of Africa to work in. That didn't work out very well. I mean, it's, there's a, there's a story behind that, but, um, I ended up doing, um, doing work in a, in a wide array of African and Asian countries mostly and, and not focusing so much on, on Ghana. I, I, I so, did maybe three or four consulting projects in Ghana back in, in the early 2000s. So can you give us an example of the audience of some of the projects you've worked on? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, the first one that, um, that, that brought me there uh, was uh, do, doing a training program on with a, with a, a group of people that were supposedly cooperative developers government employees in Ghana. And so I, I spent several days 
doing a training with about 100 Ghanaian cooperative developers. But what I found out along the way was that the, uh, the government program for cooperative development um, was really not functioning very well. And most of these, uh, most of these trainees that I was working with really didn't know anything about or didn't know very much about cooperatives. And so it was kind of a, not a very satisfying experience doing that training. So that was one experience. A second one is the co-op law of Ghana actually was derived from a British co-op law that was originally established in India, you know, like 50 years earlier or something. And it was, it was a very paternalistic cooperative law in which the director of co-ops for the government could pretty much make or break any co-op on the country on a whim or on mm-hmm. for some political reason rather than uh, something that would benefit the co-op. So uh, I worked with several other people and we did a, we went around the country, did large focus groups with co-op members, asking them what we could do to improve the co-op law of the country. And we, we got an excellent response from these local folks uh, who are, who were in co-ops. But when it came to trying to influence the Ghanaian government, we didn't get anywhere at all. When I wrote this book that we're, that we're referring to right now, I, I looked up the current Ghanaian law in co- uh, on cooperatives. It's the same one that oh pre-existed God. independence in, in, in Ghana when it was still called the Gold Coast. So that was a frustrating experience. And so I decided, you know, I... I'm beating my head against the wall here, and I'm I can't make Ghana my second home. I've got to got to work in more areas than that. So, give us a couple examples, if you would, of projects. Let's take one before the break of of a project that was successful. I'm thinking about a co-op. Okay, just real quickly, I'll pick the country of Niger, which uh, is just north of Nigeria and partly in the Sahara Desert. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. But I I was a, an evaluator of a co-op development project there that was extremely successful. It involved disseminating. This may take more time than we have before break, so cut me off when you have to. But uh, there's a tree called Moringa tree, and it produces a very nutritious leaf and t- tastes sort of like spinach, and people use it uh, as a condiment on their on their foods. And there was a, a nationwide effort, which was fostered by the National Co-op Business Association, to get this tree planted and used for food as widely as possible in Niger. And uh, it was it was very exciting to evaluate this project because it was a, it was a very successful project and and had had gotten. Uh, I'll continue after the break. <laughs> so we're going to take, thank you, sir. We're going to take our next break. We're going to come back. I want to hear more about this Moringa tree in Niger and, and how this works cooperatively. And everybody out there, please uh, do, do not touch that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. 
You know, we've, I've had Dr. Jessica Gurdon-Emhart on this show about four times, and she has talked about that every civil rights leader that you can think of has had the cooperative model as a part of, of a solution to to the problems of African Americans, whether it's Frederick Douglass or W.E.B. Du Bois, Fannie Lou Hamer, Mary McLeod Bethune, Martin Luther King, Baynard Rustin, Thurgood Marshall, A. Philip Randolph, Harry Belafonte, Ella Jo Baker, and on and on and on. And she has said, Mr. Nado, Professor Nado, Dr. Nado, she had said that when she started writing this book, Collective Carriage, it took her 15 years to gather data. She was told that co-ops were only for tofu-eating hippies, white tofu-eating hippies, and it wasn't for black folk. So what I've got from you today is, you, I got from her that all of these civil rights movement folk were into into co-ops, and it just wasn't written about and wasn't known. You've gone to Senegal, Zambia, Ghana, and before the break, we're talking about Niger, right off, right off from Nigeria, and these co-ops are all around. So I want you to continue to tell us about the Moringa tree, but in the context that these co-ops are very much in the ethos, in our DNA of Africans and African-Americans, which most of us don't know about. Please continue telling us the story. Okay, I, I don't want to dwell too much on that one project, but it was probably one of the most exciting ones that I did because of the level of success. You know, they, they took this tree that was that already existed in the country. It was hybridized to produce a a larger, more nutritious leaf. And then um, these trees were disseminated across the country and made a significant improvement in the quality of, of food and quality of nutrition in the country. Uh, during the break, one of, one of your staff members mentioned Moringa powder, which you can actually buy in the United States. And it's a powder that's made out of the leaf of the Moringa tree. And it does have you know, good nutritious properties to it. And so one of the things that they did in Niger was uh, powder it, just to, like we were talking about, and um, give it to babies. So, in a, so it, would sup- it would serve as a supplement, a healthy supplement, to mother's milk or, you know, the Nestle's milk or whatever kind of milk they had access to. So it was it was really, uh, really heartening to see the, the, the level of cooperation across an entire country, really. I visited over 20 communities in, in that evaluation that I did and, and was just amazed at, at how uh, quickly people adopted this uh, new and improved Moringa tree and the, and its nutritious leaves across the country. So, you know, that's just one example. I, I, another one that okay. might be interesting, or go ahead. No, go ahead. Give us the other one. I'm interested in that. Okay. The other one was in Mozambique. Um, there's been some trouble recently in Mozambique in terms of an Al-Qaeda affiliate, but it, that's affecting a very, very small part of the country. But I evaluated a project in in Mozambique that was in Mozambique that was growing soybeans, uh, but they were what they call non-GMO soybeans, which are n- not genetically modified soybeans, which are the vast majority of soybeans we eat in the United States. 
and um, mostly we feed them to animals. We don't eat them directly ourselves. But in uh, in Mozambique, this project that I worked on was actually uh, initiated by a Norwegian, a large Norwegian farming co-op, and they wanted to get these non-GMO, they're called non-GMO soybeans, back to Norway so that they could market them and use them in Norway. The first round of their project involved 5,000 small-scale Mozambican farmers who grew these um, special, more nutritious soybeans and um, and grew them very effectively. And But instead of having them go back to Norway, the soybeans mostly ended up going into a, a, a burgeoning poultry industry in Mozambique. So the farmers got more money from marketing them locally in Mozambique than they would have selling them to the Norwegian farming co-op. And then that that first phase was so successful that they did another phase with 30,000 small-scale Mozambican farmers. And that one was successful, too. And so there's a, a third phase of this project that's going on right now, continuing to go on in Mozambique. So it, uh, just this tremendous growth of a crop that was grown very little in Mozambique, you know, a decade ago, but is, is now a major crop in the country, supporting tens of thousands of small-scale Mozambican farmers. Fascinating. So you've been all over Africa, Asia, here in the U.S., working on this on co-ops and just have some, some really great experiences. And then I find that you've been doing a lot of writing. You've been writing this stuff down, and you've just come out with a book called Strengthening the Cooperative Community, which is March of 2021. Uh, so what what are some of the lessons that, that come out of this book? What, is, what, are, what are you trying to what are you trying to tell the world that we can do to strengthen this cooperative community? Well, I started out in the book talking about some historical examples of co-ops. For example, people would be surprised that Benjamin Franklin was one of the leaders of the first insurance cooperative in what was to become the United States before we even were the United States. And it was aim particularly at uh, addressing the problem of fires in Philadelphia as you as you might know the at that time most cities were built of wood and that wood would burn if someone left a fire untended or did something wrong so fire was a really big concern even in the colonial part of the colonial phase prior to the United States anyway i looked at about seven different cooperative sectors, insurance, credit unions, uh, farming, worker co-ops, a couple of other sectors. And from each of these experiences with these different types of cooperatives, I extracted lessons learned from both the failures and the successes in, in in the formation of these different sectors. And then I did, the second section of the book talks about the kinds of examples that I was just giving in from Niger with Moringa and in Ghana and in Mozambique. I have about, I don't know, 15 or so short chapters that 
uh, really case studies of these different cooperative development experiences, both in Africa and in in Asia, a few in Asia, mostly Africa. And for each one of those case studies, I extract more lessons about what we can learn from these experiences. And then in the latter part of the book, I kind of draw together what I call the building blocks of cooperatives, again, extracted from these examples. What what are, what are the key things that have to happen in order for a co-op to be formed and to operate successfully? And so I look at things like cooperative entrepreneurship. So instead of an entrepreneur starting a business to make a lot of money for himself, cooperative entrepreneur or a actually a group of people working as cooperative entrepreneurs establish a cooperative business to benefit a community or group of people. So you need to have this, what I call cooperative entrepreneurship. You need good co-op research. Uh, As you know, as a guy who's got a business degree, you do a lot better with your business if you have a good business plan at the beginning rather than just kind of start out thinking you're going to have the best business in town just because you're, you have this inspiration to be a good business person. So co-op research, talk about co-op education, co-op laws, co-op finance, co-op development organizations, like the one I worked on when I, when I first got involved in domestic co-ops in the U.S. And then another big theme is cooperation, cooperation among cooperatives. As a important, that's an important principle that cooperatives are supposed to live by. Instead of the competitive, often cutthroat kind of competition that occurs among a lot of for-profit businesses, the model for co-ops is to cooperate with one another rather than to try to push it into the ground. Yeah. Anyway, that's uh, that's the section on the building blocks of co-ops. It's the third major section of the book. And then the fourth section is talking about opportunities for cooperative growth in this current decade, 2021 to 2030 and beyond. So that's that's a quick summary of the book. Okay, so for everybody out there, if you've listened to this program, you know that I'll talk about the values of co-ops and the cooperative principles, and I like the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. I like to call it caring for one one another, which is a golden rule. But Professor Nado has talked about uh, the cooperative principles, haven't named them that, but it's volunteer and open membership, democratic member control, one member, one vote, member economic participation, that's normally you put some money in and you get some money out when there's a, a profit, and Throughout the world, he's talked about that. Autonomy and independence, he had talked about Ghana, where the government had a lot of control. And uh, we've had other people on the program that have talked about, in particular Africa, that they've getting away from that. But it's getting the laws where the co-op has to have that autonomy. They have to own and control it. And then the fifth principle, which is one of the first reasons. I like co-ops when I learned about them with education, training, and information, constantly giving out information information and training to everybody and the sixth principle is cooperation among co-ops and that's what Dr. Nado had just talked about and the seventh principle is concern for the community and a gentleman from Senegal said to me Papa Sin the first month we were on the program that co-ops are to solve community problems if there's no community problems there's no need for co-ops so 
that seventh one was critical for him. Sir, we're, we're going to take our final break. I like that you laid out the book. I like that. Come back and talk a little bit about that third chapter, the building blocks. But mainly, I want to talk about that fourth chapter. I have it that we have six pandemics we're dealing with: coronavirus, uh, particularly here in America, but all over the world. It, we have uh, racism. We have a poor economy. The inequalities have happened since the beginning of our time. Then we have, so we have COVID, racism, poor economy. We have climate change, and we have these people killing each other with guns or five. And then the fifth one, the sixth one I call stupidity. That stupidity isn't from stupid people. Too often it's from people trying to get more money, and it's a greed thing but they do stupid stuff for our economy. So I want to come back and really talk about, when we after this last and final break, what are some of the solutions that you see that you when you talk about strengthening the cooperative movement, that how the co-ops can help to solve these kinds of pandemics? Okay. We'll be right back. Don't touch that dial. everybody we have mr eg nadu professor doctor cooperator on the line with us this morning what we want to talk about now we've talked about you've been all over the world particularly in africa and asia and the u.s helping to f- develop form co-ops and strengthen co-ops and you're coming out with this uh this book on march of of this year strengthening the okay maybe Strengthening the cooperative community. So what are some of the things that you see that the cooperative community can help to solve these pandemics that we're in right now? Okay. With your six pandemics, you laid out a lot of the major problems of our times. And so there are a lot of things that co-ops can do to help deal with these various pandemics that you mentioned. One thing I'll start out by saying is that Taking a historical look at co-ops, a lot of what they've done has been to fill gaps that were not adequately dealt with by other businesses or governments. So, for example, the rural parts of the United States back in the 19, early 1930s were virtually totally without electricity, whereas the urban parts did have electricity. The major reason for that was that Electricity was provided by private companies who were making a, trying to make a profit off of the distribution of electricity. And if you're in a rural area, it's much more expensive to provide electricity because of the amount of wires and the distance between houses and buildings. Well, co-ops ended up, uh, with the assistance of the federal government, co-ops ended up filling that gap left by the for-profit utilities and still today are providing electricity for 40 million Americans, a pretty good hunk of our population. The same is true with with credit unions filling the gap because most banks back in the teens and 20s didn't really care about the savings and borrowings of 
poor and middle-class people. They, they wanted the big money from upper-class people and businesses. So the credit union movement filled the gap by creating thousands, literally thousands of credit unions from the 1920s to the 1960s. We are now serving something like 110 million people in the United States are, are members of credit unions. So it, there's this tendency to think about co-ops as gap fillers. And one of the things I'm, I stress in the book is that we can do a lot more than filling gaps. We can be entrepreneurial and we can, we as co-op members and co-op organizers can take the lead uh, in terms of the types of development that benefit people. Um, you mentioned inequality is one of the issues that sort of can be talked about as a pandemic. Well, those two examples I just gave with electricity and, and money are, are good examples of, of co-ops addressing problems of inequality. But we can be doing that uh, on a much larger scale and on a worldwide scale. Just a quick example, solar energy. There are still about a billion people in the world that don't have any access to electricity, and they're mostly located in in rural areas of Africa, Latin America, and Asia. A billion people, that's almost a seventh of the world's population, don't have electricity. And yet solar energy, you can, you can plunk down a solar panel anywhere there's sunshine. It doesn't need to be connected to some huge transmission line anywhere. You can have localized, what they call microgrid solar energy, anywhere in the world that there's the sun. You, know, you might need to use some, some other form of electricity if you're at the North Pole because there's not a whole lot of sun there year-round. But um, one of the things that I, I kind of uh, I'm pleading with my co-op colleagues and saying, hey, there's this gap that we have, people who don't have access to electricity, co-ops could fill that gap. We're really well-suited to that because we work with communities, uh, this idea of cooperation among cooperatives that you were mentioning and I was mentioning before. So uh, there, there is some activity being done by co-op organizations like the, the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association in the United States also does international development work with electric co-ops. And they're doing some solar co-ops in Liberia, for example, that I mentioned in the book. But this problem is huge the you know this billion person problem is huge and we need to address it strategically and on a on a large scale if we're going to be successful in spreading electricity to these communities all over the world so i get well first i want to stop here and say to everybody out there if you want to get a copy of the book strengthening the cooperative community you can go to amazon it costs ten dollars it's inexpensive. I was just looking while you were talking. Uh, it can be delivered to me by Monday. Day is Thursday. I can get it by Monday. How can they get it? I know you have a PDF form that they can get it free. How how can they get the book free? Uh, okay. The, the name of the website where you'd have to go on your computer is The Cooperative Society, all one word. Dot org. So thecooperativesociety.org, you put that into your search engine and you come up with 
the website that that I have, and then you can click on the, the part that says get a free PDF file of the book, and then you can download the book that simply as a PDF file. But why would you do that? You're giving it away free. Yeah, well, I t- I'm not in this for the money right now. I'm I'm 73 years old. I'm retired. Uh, I like to do research and write about co-ops. And, you know, I got my Social Security. I got a little retirement account. So I can afford to do this. So, but, you know, if you want to buy it, that's great, too. I, I will get a few little royalties. Not only can you buy it through Amazon, but you can order it through your local bookstore. And I rec- I recommend the the latter over the former. It's maybe not as convenient for you, but you should be able to go to any local bookstore, and they have they have a database of books that they can order. And this book is part of their database. And somebody had told me of an app that you can go for local book, and I don't remember it. I will find out how to order it from my local bookstore. I was just getting ready to hit the button to order because I want the hard, the paperback copy so I can read it and underline it and stuff as opposed to printing out the 172 pages, and I would like for you to get whatever little royalty there might be. Uh, but I really appreciate the cooperative spirit of what's best for the community, what's best for people, how you get this knowledge out and then use it. Can you give us, we don't have much time left, uh, three, four minutes left, but can you give us some examples of what you are recommend people to do to strengthen the cooperative community? Well, in, in the book, I made 16 recommendations, which we can't really address in four minutes, but these recommendations are kind of aimed at people who are already involved in the co-op movement. And just to give a, a quick example, there is a, a center for entrepreneurship within the co-op community, but it's more of a research center than an entrepreneurial development center. And so I recommend that they do more work in doing business, innovative business planning for co-ops. So, for example, that solar co-op idea that I was talking before, mm-hmm. um, a, a center like that or a number of centers around the world like, like that could take an idea and turn it into a business model that could then be applied and create many more co-ops of that kind that were successful because they're based on good business planning. So solar or broadband and a lot of the uh, those rural electric co-ops are in that world, but getting some kind of model down, I like that, so that they yes. can use it. So in the last minute or so, what message would you like to leave people with? Well, I guess the most important one is that co-ops can be a very important part of, well, addressing those six pandemics that you mentioned, but of making a a better, fair world for all of us, that co-ops are not just this little dinky thing that exists in your, I don't want to denigrate local local food co-ops because I am a member of one and I like local food co-ops, but co-ops are, are, much are more. around the world. There are a billion people in co-ops around the world. And we have the ability through cooperation and through cooperatives to make a much better world. That's probably my summary statement. So I have it. If anybody wanted to get a hold of you, Dr. Nado, is, is there a way that people could email you or go go to your webpage to get to Yes, that w- the webpage that I, the, the cooperative org, 
um, you can you can find out more about me and about what other things that are on that uh, website, uh, including how to get a hold of me. It says contact uh, email eg. Thank you, sir, so very much for being on and taking the time. I really appreciate you. I haven't read all of the book, but I am going to. I love it. I love the way you write. So, everybody out there, please have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Thursday. Live cooperatively.